Okay, so okay. I'm just going to flip over to the screen that has it. There's no rush if you mess up. Right, right, edit right. all this stuff. It's not... No issues. Hey. All right, you ready? Mm-hmm. Here we go. Family is a dance with the ones you love. Careless and beautiful. Family is the altar of life. Family. People fused and fueled by blood, mind, and heart. Wherever they are, my family is special. Always in my heart. My son, my dogs, my husband, my cats. People might say, what's up with that? How do we know who's family or not? What does it matter? Two feet or four? All are my family. My family I love. Family is forever. Love is for always. As long as I'm living, my family you'll be. Welcome to Poetry Spoken Here. I am producer and technical director Jack Rossiter Munley. Those words are taken from the first installment of U.S. Poet Laureate Juan Felipe Herrera's cooperative poetry project, Casa de Colores, or House of Colors. Every month, from now until the end of his tenure as Poet Laureate, a new topic will be selected and the public is invited to submit mini-poems via the website www.loc.gov poetry slash Casa de Colores. You can visit the Poetry Spoken Here blog to learn more about that project. The subject selected for the first month of Casa de Colores was La Familia, the family. This podcast is dedicated to the poetry of family and home. With Thanksgiving right around the corner and Christmas and Hanukkah soon to follow, families around the country are returning home. These dual themes have been central to poetry since its inception. The second literary work in the Western canon, The Odyssey of Homer, is the story of a man desperately trying to reach home and be reunited with his family. In this special episode, we will look at The Odyssey and the works of contemporary poets whose writing engages with the unique place that home and family have had in their lives. Maria Maziotti Gillen's poetry is infused with the flavor of her Italian-American upbringing. She reflects on the gifts that her family gave her and contemplates times when she was ashamed of the heritage that she has grown to love. We also visit with Bill Schmidtkunz, whose search for home led him ever northward until he finally settled in Sutton, Alaska. So without further ado, here is our very special episode of Poetry Spoken Here, the poetry of family and home. The Odyssey opens with the customary invocation of the muse. Tell me, O oh muse, of that ingenious hero who traveled far and wide after he had sacked the famous town of Troy. Many cities did he visit, 
and many were the nations with whose manners and customs he was acquainted. Moreover, he suffered much by sea while trying to save his own life and bring his men safely home. But do what he might, he could not save his men, for they perished. Homer quickly introduces us to our protagonist, the wind-blown Odysseus, and tells us of his plight. While the men he fought with in the Trojan War have long since returned home, or met a grislier end, he is set to wander the world with only his desire to come back to his wife and son to drive him on. The war was fought for ten years, and Odysseus has been questing for ten more. His family think him dead, and at home his wife Penelope and son Telemachus contest with challenges of their own. Unruly suitors have come seeking Penelope's hand in marriage. She holds them off by saying that she will only marry once she has finished weaving a great tapestry. During the days, she weaves dutifully, and at night, while the suitors sleep, she undoes her work, holding out hope that Odysseus may one day return. The Odyssey is the second oldest work of literature in the Western canon, and the themes of family and home infuse its premise and fuel its emotion. The stakes are clear. Odysseus will either survive his trials at the hands of the gods and return home to reclaim his family, or he will fall to one of a thousand horrors that await never to be reunited with his wife and son, and to have his beloved Penelope consigned to life with one of the odious men who have taken up residence in the halls that he once called his own. At the very beginning of the Odyssey, we do not meet Odysseus at the start of his journey, directly after the events of the Iliad at the end of the Trojan War. We meet him after many years of travel. He's trapped on the island of the goddess Calypso. She's a beautiful woman, and she wants to marry him. Here is how Homer describes it. So now all who escaped death in battle or by shipwreck had got safely home except Odysseus. And he, though he was longing to return to his wife and country, was detained by the goddess Calypso, who had got him into a large cave and wanted to marry him. But as years went by, there came a time when the gods settled that he should go back to Ithaca. Even then, however, when he was among his own people, his troubles were not yet over. For all her virtues, Calypso is not Penelope, and her island is not Ithaca, his home. His journey continues from there, and his efforts to escape her clutches and other adventures set off from that point. The quest for home, the themes of struggle and sacrifice, the universal connections between the characters, these are why the Odyssey is still required reading in high schools and colleges around the world. We remember and reread the Odyssey not because we still believe in the power of the Greek gods or out of a burning need to know about the historical aftermath of the Trojan War. We return to this poetic well because Odysseus's preoccupations are our own. Whether it is navigating the Scylla and Charybdis of rush hour traffic while trying to make it home for dinner after work, or shaking off the siren song of a buzzing cell phone during a family dinner, we too struggle to find a peaceful place, home with our family. Perhaps another reason we return to this story is that Odysseus is successful. He's a classical hero who triumphs over every adversity put in his path, and when he does return to his home, he handily defeats the suitors and reclaims all that was once his. This first literary vision of home and family is an attractive one, and there have been countless more since in novels, short stories, plays, and poems. Now, 
we will turn to the work of Italian-American poet Maria Maziati Gillen, who writes about her experience growing up in a first-generation immigrant family. I'm now joined by Maria Maziati Gillen, an Italian-American poet who is known for her autobiographical poetry. And I've asked her to join me for this program because her work has so much to say about home and family and how they shape her identity. So Maria, because of your work, I'm just so glad you could be with us on this particular program. Thank you, Charlie. It's a pleasure to be here. I look forward to our conversation. I knew you would. Let me start off by just saying, you've talked about what I'm going to ask you quite a bit in different poems, but let me just say, what was home like for you growing up? Well, home was a place where we spoke Italian, a Southern Italian dialect mixed with English, but, you know, very broken English. Uh, It was a place that I associated with warmth and laughter and food um, and getting together with family and always welcoming friends to the table. There was always room for one more at the table. My mother was a brilliant cook. And my father's idea was that you shared as much as you could with other people. Uh, We were poor, but it didn't particularly feel that way when when I was a little kid. Uh, We didn't have a TV. So I really wasn't privy to the other world outside of our house. Outside of our house, it was American. It kind of scared me. Inside of our house, it was Italy. And it felt welcoming and home and warm. I know from your poems, you, you had a really pleasant childhood in that sense of, of that support and love from your parents and the family. Right. I was so lucky. When I talked to my graduate students and undergraduate students, I realized that some of these kids grow up with a great deal of money, but there's really nobody in their corner, nobody supporting them, nobody that they can count on. I mean, they're supported in terms of money, but not emotionally supported. Uh, We didn't have the money, uh, but I had plenty of emotional support. Which is really the basis for adult life, I think, or forms a personality that can better handle adult life, let's say. Yes. I noticed the poem uh, in uh, your selected works, What We Pass On, collected works actually, that I, I thought would be interesting to hear because it's a, it's a well, it's Sunday dinner at my mother's home. And uh, how about reading that poem? And we'll talk Bye. about it a little bit. Sunday dinners at my mother's house. After I was grown up and had a house and family of my own, my mother cooked and served dinner for all of us, her children and grandchildren, at least 16 people each Sunday in her basement kitchen. My mother was an artist of food, and we gathered around three tables lined up end to end, macaroni and meatballs, brajola, salad, roasted chicken, potatoes, and stuffed artichokes, fruit and nuts with their own silvery nutcrackers, apple pies and turnovers, espresso and anisette. Every Sunday, the courses emerged from that kitchen and arrived at the table as if by magic. 
my mother moving like a dervish between the kitchen and the finished room that was our cellar dining room in that tiny house that wouldn't hold all of us in the dining room upstairs. The upstairs kitchen, clean and untouched, was almost never used, except to serve coffee to guests we didn't know well, while the family and friends all gathered in the cellar to eat and talk politics and baseball, the cousins whispering and giggling at the end table, and the rest of us as excited and loud as a convention of beer salesmen, except for my brother, the doctor, always soft-spoken. My father and I, the political radicals, the loudest of all in our convictions. My father, at 92, asked me to take him in his wheelchair to march on Washington. The people are asleep, he said. We have to try to wake them up. My mother didn't care about politics at all. She only cared about us, about keeping us all close to her and together. When you have trouble, she said, only your family would help you. And we all came back to be near her, back to that blue-collar town where she lived, my sister's house across the street from mine, my brother's on top of the hill, my mother's not five minutes away. I see her smiling, happy that we were all together, willing to cook for all of us week after week to make sure we'd stay that way. In my mother's kitchen, there were always stories and laughter, arguments and excitement. When I was 19, I went to a friend's house for dinner. It was the first time I sat at a table where no one spoke, no stories or conversation or laughter. Only pass the potatoes, please. The mother sitting stiff as a stick at one end of the table, the father at the other, his mouth a staple in his somber face. I was glad to go home. Now it is 10 years since my mother died, four since my father's death, two since my sister's. My son and his family are in North Carolina, my daughter in Cambridge, my brother's son in Chicago. I remember my father saying when my son moved away, not a year after my mother was dead, without your mother, the chain is broken. That is such a wonderful poem and so evocative of the entire scene. You know, mom bringing it out was, all those different dishes. I was so and, lucky and I didn't know. I was so ashamed of coming from a poor immigrant family. And now I'm so grateful because they really taught me so much about how to be in the world and how to, my mother said, the more I gave away, the more I have to, had to give. Hmm. I've tried to live my own life like that. My father gave away help with in income taxes and help with uh, uh, sending for wives and children in Italy or selling property in Italy, uh, took people to the consulate in Newark because they were afraid to do it themselves. My mother gave away food. I give away help with poetry and poetry. So um, we all have our own ways of being out in the world and giving back to the world. Yeah, well, that's that's one of the things about you personally is, uh, you know, some poets just write their poems and publish them and read them, but but you do a whole lot of things for poetry itself as, a, as an art form and as a poetic community, you might say, with the journal and the poetry center. 
I, I really try. It's important to me. I think I, I am my father's daughter in that sense. I am my mother's daughter. And I think what I learned at that table was how to be open to the world and how to greet the world with open hands. That seems to me, I'm not particularly religious, but I feel a very strong sense of needing to do that, needing to uh, have a kind of kindness toward others and toward the world that I think is spiritual in its own way. I'm wondering with a poem like that, uh, what is what is your process? How do you write a poem? Or is there a lot of different ways you get a poem? Well, no, I, I, I think for me mostly, uh, when I was younger, I would get up in the middle of the night and I'd be reading poems and then I'd start writing in my journal and before I knew it, a poem ar would arrive. And mm. I, for me, when I start writing, it's almost so the pen takes off and goes off by itself and continues to write. And it's as though I've gone to a very deep place and I have to let myself go and let whatever needs to be written be written. Later on, I go back and revise, of course, but sure. that first poem is um, really, I have to let go to do it. I found that with art as well, that I have to let go and trust in my instinct that what I have to say will come through on the page. So you might, in other words, you might start with the idea of Sunday dinner back then and just start writing and see what comes out. Something like that. Right. So it's more, yeah. Uh, I, I might not even think I'm going to write about Sunday dinner. I just oh. somehow get into the topic. And when I get into the topic, I, for me, I'm transported back to that time and place. So it becomes very specific, very, um, the memory becomes clearer and clearer. Sometimes I can't remember what I had for dinner yesterday, but I can remember something so clearly that happened 50 or 60 years ago. I'm sure that's true for many people. Yeah. As they get older. Yeah, and the details there in the poem, really, because that's what makes the poem, the details. And the way it does more than one thing. As I mentioned to you, I thought the poem is interesting for talking about home because it talks about a number of things uh, that home does for us, uh, with us. The fact that the people gather, the families there, uh, the different ways people interact, but then the way that other family was uh, not talking uh, not learning that, uh, the political element with your dad, starting to get that poem right. just has a lot. That was very important to my father. I mean, he was really very, extremely liberal. Uh, he couldn't speak English that well, but he knew more about what was going on in world politics and American politics than many people with PhDs in history. He really kept abreast of what was going on. He had a remarkable intelligence. I'm sorry he never had the opportunity to have more uh, schooling than he had, but he taught himself a great many things. And he made me into the political radical I am, I have to say. <laughs> I'm really, really uh, committed to trying to, for, to progressive causes and to trying to honor this country and what it stood for in a good sense, all the things it stood for in history in a good sense. And that's what he tried to do. But he said that in Italy, people didn't realize when Mussolini was going to take over what that meant. 
And then he said he could see in America that the people were sleeping, that they were letting they were letting go of their rights as citizens um, and not realizing. That's why he wanted me to take him to Washington to march <laughs> because he wanted to wake <laughs> the people up. He said, watch out. Before you know it, you'll have a dictator there. Yeah, yeah. He's obviously a really extraordinary person. And, and he really was. Yeah, and, and, and another poem I had noticed actually is, is called Arturo. And uh, why don't you read that one? And that says a lot about, of course, of you growing up and, and dealing with your Italian-Americanness and the world's reaction yeah. to it. And, well, the world's reaction to yeah. my own shame, um, mm. Arturo. I told everyone your name was Arthur. Tried to turn you into the imaginary father in the three-piece suit that I wanted instead of my own. I changed my name to Marie, hoping no one would notice my face with its dark Italian eyes. Arturo, I send you this message from my younger self, that fool who needed to deny the words, WAP, guinea, greaseball, slung like curved spears, the anguish of sandwiches made from spinach and oil, the roasted peppers on homemade bread, the rice pies of Easter. Today, I watch you, clean as a cherub, your ruddy face shining, closed by your growing deafness in a world where my words cannot touch you. At 80, you still worship Roosevelt and JFK, Read the newspaper carefully. Know with a quick shrewdness the details of revolutions and dictators, the cause and effect of all wars, no matter how small. Only your legs betray you as you limp from pillar to pillar. Yet your convictions remain as strong now as they were at 20. For the children, you carry chocolates wrapped in gold foil and find for them always your crooked grin and a $5 bill. I smile when I think of you. Listen, America, this is my father, Arturo, and I am his daughter, Maria. Do not call me Marie. Does being a poet influence your... Uh... How does that influence your, your expression of this or does it does it change it or do you think it made you more emphatic in your thoughts about these kinds of well, things? I think what, what happened with me is I was very shy. So I didn't really speak up very much at all until I was about 24. And then I really didn't speak up in with any authority until I was 40. But the writing helped me to say the things that I could never say. So for me, the writing was a way of expressing what I was feeling and both my love and my anger and my grief, I was able to write about it. Once I was able to write about it, I was able to articulate it. But until I could write about it, I really didn't have the self-confidence to tell, tell my story to anybody. So one of the things I've tried to do is to give other people the courage to tell their stories through writing, whether it's memoir or poetry. I like to call my poetry lyric narrative. Less and less lyrical as, as my poems have changed over the years, but still very heavily rooted in narrative, very heavily rooted in story. I always think of the troubadours 
going around telling their telling their stories and people listening. I want to do that. I, I, that's really what my poetry tries, tries to do. I'm not interested in esoteric poems. I'm not interested in appealing to five white guys from Harvard. You got it. So the so the poetry uh, really did promote your your self understanding. It was an interaction you and the poems. Oh yeah, uh, it was a way for me to make your... sense of my life. Yeah, it was it was a way for me to make some sense of what was going on in my own life and my own feelings and deal with my guilt for um, some of the ways in which I denied my background and my heritage and tried to erase that. When Jennifer was, when I were doing Unsettling America, we're editing Unsettling America, what we realized is that across ethnicities and races, people have tried to do that. They were ashamed that they didn't fit into some white concept of America. So they tried mm -hmm. to, and middle-class concept of America. So many of them were ashamed and many of them tried to erase that. Uh, and I think only in embracing what made you different are you able to rise above that early shame and, and claim what you are and proclaim it as something that you celebrate. It's a process. It's a process that anyone from from any ethnicity would uh, would go through. Uh, possibly the initial rejection, and then the growing up, seeing it differently, uh, learning, getting the self acceptance to accept it. Right. I mean, it's a slow. It's a very slow process, and I think it's not only ethnicity. It's ethnicity and race. It's yeah. also even body image and. Um, color of skin and there's height. There are so many ways in which people see themselves as outsiders. And I think that what writing does is it allows you to process those feelings and then to take them on as a positive thing rather than a negative thing. Did you pick anything else you'd like to read? Sure. I always, I always have poems I'd like to read. You're talking to Maria. <laughs> she has a million uh, poems that she'd like to read. Um, sounds good. Well, well, let's do one more. Okay. In my family. In my family, we're all tenacious to say, decide what we want and go after it. We work hard moving forward when we're exhausted and think we can't move one inch more. I wonder if it's in the genes, this need to finish everything we start, this belief that, belief that hard work and perseverance will get us through. My sister kept going to work for months after she had seizures and couldn't walk. Her living aide took her to work in a wheelchair, pushing her down the road because the sidewalks in Hawthorne aren't handicapped accessible. My father had a degenerative disease of the spine. He dragged one paralyzed leg behind him wherever he went and went he did, driving until he was 87 years old, cloth around the pedals of the car so he could reach the brake. One shoe built up to compensate for the unevenness of his legs. Driving to his friends' houses to play cards and visit, driving to the courthouse in Patterson to file a petition for his friends or register the legal to papers he drew up, his body failing him, but his mind sharp and willing him on. My son John wants to think he's not like us. I hear how, even at 32, he takes on the responsibilities for his life, how he gets up at 5 a.m. so he can be at the office by 5.30. 
how he handles the complex legal problems of a large corporation working straight through till he returns at 6 p.m. to help with the children and to deal with the house, the yard, repairs. He takes everything seriously. I love the way John carries his son in his arms, the child running to him for comfort, and the way they speak to each other without words. I know that even my son, who wants to think he is not like our family, is driven as we are to keep on going no matter what. These are the things my mother taught us by example. My mother who tripped over our skates when we were children and got up and walked the 12 blocks to Ferrara's Cove factory on River Street. She worked until noon, walked back home to make our lunches, then walked back to work. Only after she came home at 3.30 so she could be there when we got home from school did she collapse into a chair, unable to move. When she came back from the hospital clinic with a cast on her leg, 14 bones in her foot broken, she had to rest her leg on the school stool. That was one of the few times in her life that I saw her cry, not because of the pain, but because she couldn't do the work she told herself she had to do. It's good to know that you have inherited this determination and tenaciousness because it means you're going to write poems until your dying breath. We're going to get so many more so. poems out of you. Yeah, because yeah, nothing could stop you. I'm already, going, yeah. I'm already going around with a cane. So, you know, I'm hoping I'm still giving readings till I'm old. Absolutely. Not that I'm not old now. As long as you can pick up a, po a pen, you write another poem. That's just really great. That's right. All right. Well, we've been talking with Maria Maziati Gillen about her poetry and about her life and family. Now, a visit with poet Bill Schmidtkunz. So, you know, this is really interesting to me because I never really uh, knew the details of how you got up to Alaska. I remember we were in Milwaukee and sometime there in the late 70s. And I thought you went for a couple of summers somewhere in the Northwest. And vaguely, I remembered, I thought that you, you found abandoned cabins in the woods to stay in or something like that. <laughs> Was that what happened? Yes, it's kind of like that. Uh, I, I did spend almost two years in British Columbia, where I built a cabin in the woods. And, uh, and then the second year I was there, I lived on a commune with some people. And that, that didn't really work out very well. So then it was uh, time for me to leave. So uh, late 1978, I came back to Milwaukee, and I got a job and, and got some money together. And in the spring of 79, I hitchhiked to Alaska. And with a backpack and uh, just a few hundred dollars in my enough of money to get through the summer. And when I got to Valdez, it was sort of like like just a rough destination. I'll just go to Valdez. There was about four feet of snow on the ground, and the only place to sleep in the campground was on top of the picnic tables. So I hung out there for a while, uh, just a few days, uh, looking in the museums and wondering what I was going to do. So then I I hitchhiked uh, from Valdez up to Fairbanks. I was just looking around the state. I, I came to Alaska to look for a home. So I went up to Fairbanks and it's drier up there. So there was less snow. It was early spring, early May. 
and then I then I went on up to uh, Circle City, and the ice had just gone off the Yukon, and there were blocks of ice in the in the town about the size of school buses everywhere. So I, I stayed there for a night, and uh, and then from there I ended up hitchhiking back down into Anchorage and down to Seward, where my life really in Alaska took off. Uh, I worked in the cannery there for a few days. Then I met a guy who said, you know, we should get on that ship that just came into town last night. And, and the next morning we did. And it was a cannery ship that took us out to Kodiak Island, out to the Aleutians, and, and many other adventures. I could, I could go on for a, a, quite a long time here. Wow. So this reminds me of like Snyder uh, doing his, his time on the, on the boats there. This is one of these deals where you make a lot of money because you work like crazy for a short period of time. And then you have the rest of the year to do other things or to build a cabin or something. It's a lot like that. You, uh, I think I was making like five or six bucks an hour, but you know, working a hundred hours a week, you know, just crazy time. And it was, I remember when they gave me my first paycheck, we came back to port and they handed me a paycheck. I think it was for like uh, $800 or something, which is more money than it took me six months to make in Milwaukee. And I, right. and I thought, wow, I'm good here. <laughs> it was just a wonderful feeling. Yeah. Had you always had this uh, the thing for Alaska? I mean, when you were a kid or did where'd that come from? Like, I'm not sure. I, I think it was just my, my traveling and I, I kept moving further north all the time. And when I left British Columbia, I was looking for another place that was just as wild. And and I thought Alaska would would be that place. And actually, when I first came here, I was, I was kind of disappointed in it. It is a lot of it is was not very spectacular to me. It took a while for it to grow on me. I didn't like all the daylight in summer for the for the first thing, and it wasn't like going to the Grand Canyon or or Yosemite where everything is so majestic. It's it's a much more subtle beauty here. But you know, after a while, you start to realize that there is a tremendous amount of grandeur here, and it just takes time for your your mind to come to terms with the vastness of of it all. And um, so Alaska, you know, I guess it was always in my mind, but I, I never I never really thought of it as growing up like, oh, I'm going to go to Alaska and build a cabin in the woods. I always thought I'd do that in northern Wisconsin or something. Oh, so, uh, but but you knew you were going to leave uh, Wisconsin, Milwaukee. That was something in you that you had to go find your own place. Yeah, Milwaukee like. uh, is, an, is a great place. But, you know, my, my family was sort of like, well, you're going you're gonna to stay in Milwaukee. You're going to get a factory job or you're going to go to college. You know, you're going to sort of fit this mold. And uh, mm -hmm. I just, it just wasn't for me. It wasn't working out. And I, and I had to go. I just had to hit the road. I had to go find it. And it was out there. I knew it was out there. And uh, yeah. so uh, I took a creative writing class at UWM. Uh, Antler was my teacher. And uh, he introduced me to On the Road. And that just led me to a lot of other amazing writers. And I, it was like a finger pointing you know, go west, young man, or, you know, just get out of here. <laughs> and, it, and it saved my soul, you know, just, it really did. Yeah. Have, have you been writing, were you writing poetry through the, all this time? I mean, I know you write poetry, I have your new book, but um, do these various adventures and living up there and all that, have, have you been consistently writing, reading, staying connected with poetry? I like to write a lot. I think it's a necessary outlet for me as a, as a person. I keep a journal fairly regularly. And in, in some of that writing, there is poetry, but I don't really over the years have sat down specifically to write poetry. Um, 
the material that came from this book really started about 10 years ago when I wrote the, the poem Home. That was a kind of a tra traumatic summer there. Uh, my mother just passed away. My cousin of mine took her life. And then my sister-in-law asked me to be the minister at her wedding. So my, my head was really filled with a lot of family ideas and, and, and family things. And that's when I wrote, I just pulled over the side of the road one day and wrote it down. Uh, a lot of it just came to me. Wow. And then since then, I just, you know, it was like the, another door opened in my life. And I thought, oh, you know, yeah, poetry, that's right. I'm a poet too. So then I started writing more. And the culmination of it was this was this book, which took uh, about 20 years to put together. Do you have it handy? Can you I do, Charlie. It's, yeah, I have it right here. Excellent. I received a lot of nice compliments about it. A, a woman told me it's a lot about relationships, this book, as, after she got done. And there's a lot of people in here that I've met um, in recent years or, or people I've met in my past that, that I wanted to say something about. And they, they all had something in common. They were all, they were all trying to – it was their home. It was wherever they lived. And as a, as a carpenter, which is what I do now, I'm in a lot of people's homes. And uh, so, some of them are fine. Some of them need a lot of work. Some of them are sad. Some of them are happy. So, so, so I thought, well, of all, of all the people that I've, that I've met through the years, the, the common thread has always been where they lived. And, and sometimes it can be a house. Sometimes, uh, like in the opening poem in the book, it's a voyager's poem. The home that night for these people who are just traveling in kayaks happens to be a, a little stretch of beach in Prince William Sound. And, and their home that, at night is under some spruce trees. But, but it's, it's the place where, where they feel peaceful and, and comfortable and happy. Read the read the home poem. I'll read <laughs> if you would. I'll do that. This is home. Great. We fine tune the memories of our life with the love in our hearts. To those warmer frequencies where the static is absent and the music is worn by its own groove deep into the fabric of our spirit. As a spider's web catches dust from rocks split by glaciers. We too, abraded by our interface with life, rest in the waiting arms of stillness and purity and call this presence of peace home. Did you think of a specific home of yours when you wrote that? Or was it just all those family things going on at that time? You think I was thinking of my home it? here in Sutton. This is, you know, I was thinking of this place here. I was, because the glaciers are just up the river from us. Our air is full of dust. You know, when the wind blows, um, we eat, breathe, and sleep glacial dust sometimes. And um, so when I was thinking about that, um, yeah, the love in our hearts, the memories in our life. You know, my mother passed away. We were so thinking about the past and um, and moving on from there. And and where as a family do we find home now? When, when someone so significant like that in your life passes away, does it does your home disappear, or or um, do do you realize that that what your mother created for you, and what your parents created for you, is home and it's in your heart, and you can carry that with you wherever you go. It doesn't matter whether it's Alaska or Wisconsin or wherever in the yeah. world. It's it's you. You mentioned that uh, you're a woodworker, uh, but. I know you do much more than uh, just build decks for people and bookshelves because you've done, you know, fine craft things that win prizes and shows. And I think a while ago you worked on for the opera, building sets for the opera. Is that true too? 
And yeah, I worked how'd backstage. Get, how'd you get into that? I'm into the woodworking. Had you always been just good? You built a cabin early on, and then you built your house. Um, <laughs> you're kind of amazing, Bill, I got to say. <laughs> um, actually, uh, b before I started working for the opera, I spent about five years working in the Arctic uh, for the oil companies doing seismic uh, research work in the winter. So I worked on the pack ice uh, from like uh, late December until May when the ice broke up, and then we had to get off. And after after five years of that, I thought, you know, I I really should be doing something different with my life besides this. And I thought, well, the next job I'm going to take is going to be in construction. And I happened to be going to the paper one day, and there was an ad for a theater carpenter for the Yankee Chopper. And I thought, well, what the heck? You know? I mean, I had done some carpentry then. I was familiar with, with framing, and I'd been in a couple of framing crews. I thought, well, we'll give it a try. So I went in, and I, and I got the job. And the first show was Rigoletto. And I was, this set was about half built, so I, I helped him finish the set and get it on stage. And they actually needed an extra for the show. So I was, I was that's my, my stage debut was in Regaletto and Anchorage Opera. <laughs> I didn't have any speaking parts, but I was a guard. And I had a really fancy uniform that uh, came from the Metropolitan uh, uh, Opera, actually. And um, and then they were looking for carpenters for other shows. And, and they hired me for a lot of other things that year not just with the opera, but with other theater groups in town, a performing arts center, uh, art services North. And then my name got around town as someone dependable and pretty good carpenter. And I ended up uh, doing a lot of uh, high-end furniture for uh, Alaska Public Lands, the native groups, the park service and things like that. And then from time to time, people would, would call these theater groups and say, hey, you know, do you have a carpenter down that can come down and fix my door or you know, we've got this problem with our deck or the roof is leaking. Uh -huh. And I started answering these calls. And over time, I was answering more calls and more calls. And then pretty soon I was doing um, I had quite a little handyman business going and less and less theater. And now today I, I don't do any theater at all. And it's it's all it's all small stuff uh, or big stuff. Uh, additions on homes, uh, car carports. Uh, I do have an opportunity to build high-end furniture once in a while. In fact, there's an art show every year in February, and I try and get a piece in there. The um, stuff I'm working on right now is steamer trunks. I build big boxes, and I uh, order or have made for me iron hardware for the for the corners and for the locks and uh, things like that. Wow! It doesn't sell at all, but uh, it's really fun to make. <laughs> but it wins prizes, right? It wins prizes, and. Uh, it, like poetry, it's it's another expression that if I didn't do, there'd be something missing in my life. So, uh, you know, I go out and bang it out. And when I get done, I stack it up in my daughter's bedroom. So <laughs> here's here's another piece of art for you, Patty. That's it. You got it. <laughs> here's your legacy or here's your dowry or whatever. Yeah. Well, you had a couple other poems in the book that I, that I had picked out that I, I thought also create a, a real home scene to me. And and uh, one of them is Beautiful House. I can read that. This is, okay. you know, my wife has horses and my in-laws had horses. We spent a lot of years putting up hay. And of course we have gardens that we harvest too. So having gardens and harvesting our food, uh, putting up fish, all, all of these things are a critical part of our life and keeps us in rhythm with the seasons. And, um, so here we go, I'll read it. Beautiful house. We are sitting happy, pick up a load of hay, enough for wintered horses, 
now semi-drunk by wood stove, trying to feed the soul. Dreams in the flames are as stones brought down from mountains by glaciers. And if I took the time to carry them all back, it will be a different mountain. And if I could gather up the flames, they will not make another tree. Then it would not matter what I name myself or where I make my home. The work will unfold to where I worry less, find some understanding in the journey, the way of living, the way of being, the way home. Yeah. You know, I was I was thinking just before we started talking on the air, uh, I Googled Sutton and read the Wikipedia entry. And you're pretty lucky that you found your lovely longtime wife because guys outnumber girls there two to one. I was very fortunate to meet According you. According to Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably, and it was worse when I first came to Alaska. It is, in this area, it has evened out quite a bit. But in rural areas, yes, uh, there are very few women. And, and a lot of guys. And women help make for home. We all know that. Absolutely. And we have yeah. a beautiful daughter that, that really cemented our marriage and cemented our love and just took our relationship. And, and this and this house that I built, which was pretty empty and cold, into just this, this wonderful place that I really enjoy. One one thing that comes up a lot in my in my work, and I recognize it in this poem as I was reading it, is the importance of work. And um, I do work a lot and uh, your, your craft is very important and, and getting up every day. And I think that's just the Midwestern mentality that I grew up with is that you, you did a job and you, you did it well. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, you took pride in your work. And, I, and as, as I was rereading it, there's a lot of poems in this book about work, which is also sort of a home experience as well. You can feel home in your work where it's fulfilling and um, strengthening for you as a person yeah it seems uh that's it's a variation on saying that you're finding your place like your place in life uh the work how about one more poem uh i have one i picked out or you could just pick one that you'd really like to read well charlie i'll 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 read the last poem great The, the, the book sort of starts with these people voyaging to a you know voyager's poem there's bruce tree and it's their camp and and they're all excited about you know, this big adventure they're on. And the last poem has to do with um, my in-laws leaving Moose Creek Ranch and, um, for health issues and a lot of other things. And I was one of the last people there. I had to rebuild the new deck on the house in order for it to be sold. So I was sitting on the deck one day and uh, in fact, the day I finished, it snowed the next day and it was absolutely beautiful there. And I thought of the people in this house, and I thought of them moving on. And I wrote this poem, and it's called October. Our last days on the farm porch, lives more bark than leaves. We listen in silence to Moose Creek swimming through the roots of cottonwoods and the lumbered tailings of the railroad coal bridge. Swallow nests in the barn are empty and the unfinished chores rust with the tools. The moods of the coming seasons will now write their own words in the patterns of the paths that crossed our fields, in the patterns that web the life. Other patient rhythms must take us through the difficult work to where again we feel light 
and alive. Doors are open, windows filled with light. We will feel welcome there, warmed by other fires that will hold us through these new cooler winds. Nice one at the end of the book. Yeah. Feels like a closure kind of thing. It was. It was the end of their life, and um, we, we've all kind of moved on. But it, but, um, it was, yeah, it was a nice end of the book. It was the last one I read, so it wrote, so it's my favorite. You know, how that goes. <laughs> your last poem is always your favorite poem. You bet. <laughs> you know, we've been talking to William Schmidt about finding his place in the world, his place in Alaska, and his new book, Home. You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, inviting you to join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack Rossiter Mundley. And remember, Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash poetry spoken here. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash poetry spoken here. For more about today's show and other Poetry Spoken Here podcasts, as well as our blog, just visit our website, poetryspokenhere.com. If you'd like to submit suggestions of poets or topics for future podcasts, you can send to our email address, poetryspokenhere at gmail.com. And this is Jack here one last time to say a very special thanks to Mr. Mark Davis, who was kind enough to read selections from Casa de Colores.